Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is Tuesday, October the 22nd. Welcome into the show. 8 a.m. on the East Coast. 5 a.m. out west for all of you early risers up watching, listening to the show. Hats off to you. Thanks for tuning in on this Tuesday morning. Coming up after the break, we will be uh, joined by a friend of the show, Jack Gidney. Looking forward to uh, catching up with, with Jack So uh, yesterday we were we were talking uh, and looking at this uh, San Diego Tribune article where Mark Ziegler had gone through um, looking at the Federation and, and the problems with the Federation and um, you know why are we having these issues and, and what's required in order for us to get some uh, improvement some change. I, I think I, I pointed this out yesterday, but uh, I, I want to reiterate this, and then I want to pick up on some of the conversation uh, we were having yesterday as well. The first point is this, that those of us who want to see change in this country, who want things to be done differently, want it done differently because we want the best for American soccer. We want American soccer to reach its potential on all levels in all areas. I can't say that enough. It is it is so important that we reiterate that over and over again that that no one can kind of take that um, stance that those of us who want to see things differently are trying to attack anyone or, or, or try to destroy U.S. soccer. In, in my ideal scenario, what I would love to see happen is for the Federation to get fixed there's a lot of fixing that needs to take place. But my ideal scenario would be that the Federation gets fixed. It becomes fully FIFA compliant. It becomes a well-run, non-profit, national governing body slash federation in the way that it conducts its operations, in the way that it conducts um you know, its finances in the way that it conducts its sanctioning, its processes, its hiring. In every way, I would like to see this organization be the global standard for every federation in the world in how it's run. At the same time, in an ideal scenario, with all of that, I would love to see Major League Soccer, the USL, NISA, the NWSL, all come into alignment in a connected system of leagues. That is the best case scenario for American soccer. And it's really what needs to happen. We need every club in this country connected in a system of connected leagues. And that connection of leagues is not buy-in fees as its first or primary method of entering a league. That the primary is your success on the field. Your, your primary entrance into a, a league is how well you've done. And I would love to see all of our leagues connected. That, I, you know, I just want to get all of that out there. Like that is, I, I don't want to see Major League Soccer burn to the ground. I want to see 
the system function properly. Now, if Major League Soccer says, we don't care, we don't want any part of this, screw all of you, then, you know, obviously that's a different story. But that's that would be their choice. I don't want... I don't want them to fail. I don't I don't want them to continue to get away with what they're doing by running the federation de facto from behind the scenes as almost a puppet master. I don't think that's good for the country. I don't think it's fair for the country. I don't think that that gives us open access and opportunity in this country. And so those things, I think, need to change. But I want to see the leagues in this country connected. Because for me, it's always and will always be club over league. A league should just be a group of clubs organized to play in a competition together. That's all a league should be. The clubs should be the focus. Jurgen Klinsmann was was famous for talking about uh, back at the 2010 World Cup about how the American pyramid is upside down. But there are so many things out of whack because our system is dysfunctional. One area is that too often we talk about leagues over clubs or leagues over franchises or teams. It's a real issue. The Federation has rules in place in, in how it addresses professional leagues. And it, it has taken upon itself this idea that there's only one way to run or a primary way to run a professional team. And they have dictated owner all the way down to the the fact of 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 the amount of ownership shares and percentages and net worths of individuals to be qualified to own a team and it's such a bad metric of of measurement because when you pigeonhole yourself into that scenario number 1 you are completely ruling out other ownership structures. The most well-supported league in the world is the Bundesliga that has a 50% plus one fan ownership model built into their system. Those kinds of clubs are not permitted in the United States in our professional leagues, especially at the top levels. Barcelona, supporter-owned club. Real Madrid, supporter-owned club. Bayern Munich, majority, 50% plus one, supporter-owned club. Not permitted in the United States. Burnmouth in the Premier League, small club, small town, would have to get an exception or fall into the 25% of teams in the first division, not in a metro market of a million plus. Ibar, 
same thing. Who are we to judge where the great soccer clubs and supported clubs will come from? We don't know. But I would bet that in a country so vast, so large, from a population and geography standpoint, that there would be a lot of places that would not have Major League Baseball, the NFL, or the NBA, that if they had a professional club with the opportunity to play at the highest level, would receive massive support Support that would be captive, unmatched, because they would not have an an MLB, NBA, or NFL team to even compete with. And there are tons of those cities, large cities across this country. We're just not doing the administration, which is the Federation's job. We're not doing the administration of soccer in this country very well. We don't have the right leaders in place. We don't have the right rules in place, the right standards in place. There are so many areas where we are falling short. And as a result, we are left with a dysfunctional system, a system that does not operate well, and it creates a lot of bad situations. One of the byproducts, one of the, the ugly side effects of this dysfunctional system is that it is a system of gatekeepers. At a federation national team level, Major League Soccer is so ingrained, so involved at the federation level, at the top level, that when Don Garber talks about having Major League Soccer be the league of choice by 2022, I'm starting to think maybe he's not referring to league of choice as it compares to competing with the Premier League or La Liga or Bundesliga or Serie A. But maybe what he's actually meaning is that if you want to play on the national team, the league of choice for you to play in is major league soccer because we keep looking at these player selections and they don't make a lot of sense except for the fact that they are in major league soccer. Maybe that's what Don Garber means. And we laugh and we, we make fun of those things. But when you look at how, how involved Don Garber is at the Federation level. The guy earns double-digit million-dollar paychecks off of contracts with the same Federation, non-profit Federation, of which he is a board member. I don't care if you are the purest of pure souls. That'd be very hard to be objective being a board member knowing that your influence and your decisions and your opinions are going to have a a direct impact on your multi-million dollar bonus checks because of a contract with that same board. That'd be hard for me to process. It's such a massive conflict of interests. Another area we see gatekeepers pop up is coaching. 
If you're not familiar with soccer parenting, Sky Eddie Bruce, who's a friend of the show, she's been on the show recently and and shared about coaching. On Twitter, she she tweeted out a stream of some comments from some parents and 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 what's going on with some some coaches they're dealing with. It's not parents trying to complain. It's not parents trying to be a nuisance or bad or cause problems. But they're dealing with an entitled, empowered coach who's a gatekeeper. Yet again, another byproduct of our dysfunctional system. Instead of the Federation ensuring equal opportunity and equal out, uh, access, we have a system that means that you can do whatever you want. And if you know the right people, you can get a, you can get a shot. If you have enough money, you have a chance to get a seat at the table. Period. You don't even have to have an existing team to skip the line and go all the way to the first division. It's absurd. We wonder why television numbers suffer. We wonder why people are not showing up to national team matches. It's because whether the public fully realizes it or not, they know something's wrong. For a lot of fans, that that level stops at the at the national teams. They just don't know why, for example, the men's national team is so bad. They don't know why the women's national team doesn't get more support. And so their interest at that level doesn't go beyond that. But that same dysfunction is having an impact, influence on those supporters, those fans. And you keep taking that a step farther, each level going deeper. I mean, we have a setup in our country where we have the the greatest women's national team program in the world. And when it comes to our professional council, which is the group of professional leagues that get a, a vote in U.S. soccer decisions, elections, etc., at national council meetings, we treat our men's professional teams and league in the first division differently than our women's professional league. Giving Major League Soccer a nearly three times the number of votes and voting power of the NWSL. Think about that. Our top professional league on the women's side, not only are they not equal to their male counterparts, clear gender discrimination. But they've even been granted less voting power than our men's second division. It's absurd. But this is part of the dysfunction. It's all over the federation. 
if you if you were to do an organizational assessment, if you were to go through and do an audit of the federation as an organization, to put this in medical terms, the U.S. Soccer Federation is eaten up with cancer. It's savable, but it's stage four. And it's expanding and growing every day. That's not good. I talked about it yesterday on the show. We need a change of leadership. This is nothing personal against anyone who is on the board of U.S. soccer or president, vice president, or the top-level executives of of U.S. soccer house that operate day-to-day operations. But the facts are we are where we are, and we need new blood. We need new ideas. We need new leadership. Two years in, nearly two years in, from the last presidential election, there's just not enough progress. I would actually make the argument there's been very little progress. So when we start to, to, to make this assessment, we go through and we audit, where's the increased transparency coming from the board? At last year's AGM, we, we had a policy approved for the publishing in updating of the website when it comes to board board meetings. Well, that's a good first step, but there's no bidding or procurement policy. The board can spend money however they want to. No checks, no balances, no accountability, no transparency, no requirement of even getting multiple bids. Nothing published in the policy manual in regards to the finances. Nothing published when it comes to how we treat professional leagues when it comes to voting power based on gender. Nothing in the policy manual as it relates to our professional leagues in, in, in the standards of which they have to operate by. There are a lot of things that are in the dark at the board level that we don't know about. Not published. Not available to the public. Issue after issue. We can be better. We should be better. I believe that American soccer, that the United States of America could be the greatest soccer country on earth. But we have to start making different decisions to get us there. Because what we are doing right now is not working. It is not getting us there. It is is not getting us anywhere near reaching our potential. In every league... Every team, every organization, there is a massive, massive amount of opportunity out there. It's not about destroying everything. It's about getting everything healthy. It's not about burning things to the ground. It's about getting things fixed. Our sponsor this half hour is Ducktick Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. If you have not checked them out, they've got some really cool products they've released and you should take a look at them for sure. And when you do, use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your next order at ductickbrand.com. We'll be right back after this with Jack Gidney.
Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in this Tuesday morning, October the 22nd. We are joined by a friend of the show and a friend of mine, Jack Gidney. Jack, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? I'm doing good, mate. I um, officially got my American citizenship last week, so this is my first time on the show as an American, so... Hopefully, I'll be a bit kinder this time. Dual citizen, right? I am, mate. Yeah, dual, dual citizen. Dual citizen, Jack Gidney. Congratulations! You now get to Thank vote. Um, I do get to vote. I do. Right, get to vote. and uh, so. Uh, Good luck trying to find a good choice in the next election. I don't. I don't know that. Uh, looking over the horizon, we have many good options, but uh, um, you'll get to vote either way. So uh, you know, take advantage and uh, and enjoy uh, that experience for the first time uh, while while your your home country country of birth uh and still trying to figure out uh and may still be trying to figure out 100 or 200 years from now how to separate from europe so uh yeah as it, as if it wasn't hard enough to vote in one country i've made it difficult in both so um i never do things the easy way mate so uh let's get into some football some uh some soccers uh as we call it here in in america for some uh, strange reason um uh-huh. Taking a look, uh, you know, we come through the summer, the, the U.S. women's national team win the World Cup. Um, mm-hmm. Looking ahead, Jill Ellis has recently stepped down, ended her reign as the national team coach. There's been uh, a bit of speculation about her replacement. Uh, at one point, Phil Neffel's name was mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, also, uh, uh, his name's escaping me, the, the coach at Arsenal uh, for, the, yep. for the women's Joe. team. Yep. Um, have you have you heard anything on that front? And, and, and more importantly, what kind of coach, knowing the U.S. women's national team, being familiar with the landscape uh, and, the, and the type of players we have available here and the way that Jill Ellis ran that team for the next chapter, the next cycle, the next uh, season for this U.S. women's national team, what kind of coach do you think the U.S. should be looking at to build uh, the program to an even higher level going forward? Uh, yeah, we talked about this during the World Cup. I mean, it, it, I think that this there's a cycle of players here who are coming to the end for the US, who've been terrific servants and won everything, um, but they're getting up in age. And so I think there's, you know, over the next four years to the next World Cup, there will be a turnover of players. Um, I think, obviously, we talked about nations in the last World Cup that really showed well. Um, and impressed, certainly with the style of football they were playing or how far they'd come in the four years. Um, it would be nice to see, I mean, for me personally, it would be nice to see a coach come in and bring in the newer crop of players coming through and be a little bit more perhaps progressive with the football they played. I think the U.S. was good in the last World Cup, but not as good as I think they should be. I think it's the best squad in the world. I think if you ask any coach in the game, in the women's game, particularly at the World Cup, you look at the squad of players. I think every coach would have picked to have that squad of players at their disposal. Um, So, I mean, for me as a coach, when I work with a better team, I think the standard that I want to see or the bar is set a little bit higher when you have the best at your disposal. Um, you know, you look at teams in the Premier League and that's why Man United are where they are in the league and it's disappointing for them. But you you look at teams who scrape and avoid relegation and they're pleased with it. It just depends on what the expectations are for what you have at your disposal. Um, so I, I, I'd like to see somebody come in and bring a, new, a, a younger crop of players in and kind of say, OK, you're the team for four years and we're going to run with it and see how we get on and, you know, kind of build and their own identity and their own culture on the team. Um, but I, I don't know, whoever gets the job, they're, they're walking into just a wealth of talent. Um, and it's a very desirable job to have. It's, it's probably the number one job in the women's game. So, when we uh, when we look at the landscape of uh, women's soccer here in the the U.S. since the World Cup, um, we we've seen 
attendances grow in the NWSL over the summer, uh, better ratings, uh, FIFA even reporting good ratings for this uh, World Cup that took place this past mm-hmm. summer in France. Uh, all good indicators for growth of the women's game, which is which is sorely needed um, all around the world. And, uh, and, and especially here in the U.S. where we have this massive country from a geograph- geographical standpoint as well as a numerical population standpoint, uh, but only nine franchises currently, although there's speculation that uh, one to two more should be announced here soon, possibly uh, this, this coming weekend uh, with the uh, in WSL final. Um, when when we look at the landscape of women's professional soccer in the U.S., uh, how important is it for the league to continue to build upon the success of the of the national team from this past summer, going forward and, and growing the number of teams and number of cities in which uh, they have coverage for the league in terms of building for the future to not just be sustainable but to also raise the standards and quality going forward. Yeah, I think it's massive. Uh, the lack of teams or franchises, I suppose, is is the word to use, um, is is baffling. Uh, I think that's the first thing that has to change. I know for me here in Los Angeles, and I'm in I'm in a hotbed of female soccer. I can't go and watch an NWSL game. Um, I got to go a very long way to watch an NWSL game. Um, that's mad. Um, means we're not going to games. We're not watching games. We're not picking up players. Um, we're not getting the revenue in. Um, it's not growing in this area. Instead, we've got two men's teams going at it in the semi-final, but no women's team. But if this is this is where women's soccer is phenomenal. Um, a number of teams has to happen. There's a lot of talent in the college game um, that I think doesn't get enough of an opportunity to find a home. So you look at all the talent in the in the collegiate game, particularly both with domestic players and players who come from all over the world to to play collegiate soccer in the US as a female. Um, they don't have anywhere to go. They're kind of forced into like 30 or 40 spots across nine teams. There's just not enough, not enough opportunity to grow and develop talent and push the game on um, and push its exposure on and push its investment on. Uh, I think that's a real shame. I think it's a real shame. Um, I'm I'm one of these people who thinks these victory tours that U.S. soccer does is a total waste of time. Um, you know, how many times do you want to beat Korea um, when you could take the best players and the champions and put them in their 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 home stadiums and have more people in their area come out and watch the league play and grow interest in the league. You know, I watch people tweet all the time. Well, well, you followed us in the World Cup, but you don't go and watch the NWSL. Well all the players that we all want to come and see and all people that are maybe new to the game or only got involved in the World Cup, they can't go and see them in their home stadiums because they're not there anymore. They're off somewhere else beating you know, Portugal or Korea or somebody. It doesn't matter just to have a celebration. And I think that is, that is a massive opportunity lost. I don't think it's as much even a, a celebration tour as a, I called it a fundraiser for the U.S. Soccer Federation um, to raise funds to uh, combat the lawsuit that the U.S. Women's National Team is bringing against them. Uh, I, I laugh as I say that, but there's got to be some truth to this uh, that, <laughs> that the Federation, um, you know, is really run- circle. right. It's running victory laps and taking the money hand over fist to fight the lawsuit uh, brought on by this very players that they're uh, raking in the uh, the fundraiser dollars from. Uh, I want to get to something with you uh, that you brought up when I asked you about the, the you know, growing the footprint. Uh, and you mentioned no NWSL teams um, in California. And in it, it, I want I want to talk about that, and I also want you to kind of describe as someone who, you know, has come from the UK. You're here in uh, Southern California. The potential of Southern California. Obviously, there's two uh, MLS franchises um, that uh, are playing um, there in the Los Angeles area. You have, um, you know. The, the MLS uh, franchise up in uh, in the Bay Area as well. And so you've got, you know, three teams um, there, soon to be four with Sacramento. 
there in California. Rumors of San Diego eventually landing an MLS team. You've got USL teams. You've got NISA there in California. USL uh, Championship. USL League Two there. No NWSL in the state of California. Talk about the potential of professional soccer on the men's and women's side because I talk to people out there in, in Southern California, people involved even at the state association level who talk about how even with with what is already there at present, still not even scratching the surface of the potential of Southern California in particular, but the state of California at large in terms of professional soccer on the men's and women's side. Uh, it's, it's absolutely massive. I mean, you know, to, I, I am one of the people I'm going to talk about. I'm an immigrant who's come here to Los Angeles and it's my home. Um, it's such a metropolitan area and everybody seems to be coming here from all over the place that soccer is such a huge aspect of, the, of where they're from that people want to have it in their adopted cities. Um, so as far as, as far as the growth is huge, for the women's game in particular, it, it, I find it baffling because I used to go to, or I used to spend a lot of time at youth national team camps watching the men's games and I could go to uh, let me get them. It's Dignity Health Sports Park now, I believe, um, in Carson, and go to a men's youth national team camp. And I remember going in one of the first camps I went to would have been, um, oh God, it would have been a long time ago. It would have been the Perry Morosevich and um, that camp. And there's, you know, one man and his dog there, or parents of the players. There's nobody there. Um, you know, I've been watching Christian Pulisic run around those fields you know, with about four other people um, for years. But if you go to a youth women's national team camp there, it's packed. All the kids from local clubs come out. Um, there's all little girls of all ages watching the games. There's parents bringing their girls to the games because this is all they have to watch. Um, so the, the potential is is enormous in the women's game. I, I've been a head coach in the WPSL for two years. Um, I'm hoping to be doing it again next year. Um, I don't think that's taken seriously enough. I don't think there's much investment in that. They bought in the UWS the last couple of years, which is, is trying. Um, but the WPSL, I, I love the WPSL because it's where the college players go and play in the summer. And I don't think that gets given the respect it deserves because, you know, it's where the breeding ground of, of top players are at. I've played against some top players in the WPSL. The national team has played against me in the WPSL. Um, and that, again, gets no funding, no money, no nothing. Um, it's, it's, it's an afterthought at the moment. And that, unfortunately, is, uh, is a real shame. How many NWSL teams in a in in a California setup, whether that's you know Northern California, Southern California, how many teams do you think could be viable in the NWSL? Uh, it's a good question. Two, I would say, from the LA to sort of Orange County area. I think the I think you could probably get away with doing one in LA and Orange County, um, and one in San Diego. Um, it's really tough because I think timing is key, um, and culture is key. You know, LAFC did a really really good job of getting establishing a culture and a, a gap in the market that that the Galaxy weren't hitting, and they've done it very well. Um, if you go to a game at LAFC, it's a totally different environment and feel to if you go to a game at the Galaxy. Um, so I think they did a good job in that. Um, I think partnerships are really huge, um, particularly in the girls' youth game. I think there are some of the mega clubs of youth clubs out here that could probably align themselves or maybe push to try and get one of their own that may, might be attached in some way, if directly or indirectly, that I think could help. I know the Slammers are trying to do it with LAFC. Um, so I think that is a is a is a link that's missing. I think the MLS misses a massive trick in not getting directly involved with the NWSL. Um, I know Portland, the guys at the the guys at Portland do very very well um, because of the partnership between their men's and women's teams. Um, but like it, again, it's timely. Like if they open two women's teams at the same time, I, I think it could dilute it a little bit, um, and you don't want to see one struggle. So 
I think at this point when we only have nine teams and no teams in Southern California, I'd be happy to just get one. Right. So, I mean, you're looking at what? Two, three, Southern California, maybe one, uh, Northern California, maybe two at most, uh, Northern California. But you, you could real, you could realistically look at four teams, basically half the size of the current, um, NWSL just in California alone. And yet we don't have a single franchise for the NWSL in California. A little bit of a, a head scratcher, as you mentioned, a hotbed for the women's game and, and the game in general general the game at large and um you know i i think it's 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 been an, an opportunity missed and i and i hope that going forward um it, it gets addressed i i think um you know partnering with you know a a an existing team that's operating a men's team um to me makes sense i look at what's going well, on it's, it's, it's not just that you need an organization because outside of the soccer you need you need the front office, you need the ticketing department, you need the marketing department. You need some sort of organization to back with where you can, you can double dip a little bit. It's not just, it's not just the pure soccer side of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And that's where I was going was when you look around the world and you see, you, you see the, you know, the, the Barca having the, the, the women's, portion of their club um, you see that with Arsenal you see that with Liverpool and and other clubs uh, around the world um, starting to do this more and more it's exactly going to what you're talking about it's a club it's a holistic thing it's not just um, you know a, a siloed off or standalone project it becomes part of the club at large which does provide some you know advantages operational advantages uh, built in fan base is, is one of those things that often gets mentioned yeah, brand loyalty brand loyalty you know um the, the fact as you mentioned um you can you can lower your overhead because you you know if you've got a ticketing office uh, it's probably not going to cost you any more money to run ticketing for the women's game than the men's game and if so it's marginal compared to running that as a, as a standalone set of operations so i mean I, I think there's a lot of things and a lot of uh, of good things and advantages to, uh, to to taking a holistic approach uh, to, to running a soccer club, um, you know that we in the in the the U.S. should really be trying to take advantage of, especially having this legacy and heritage of uh, the U.S. women's national team program, the success that they've had. Uh, it's been you know light years uh, better than their male counterparts, um, and yet on the federation level something that uh is has just happened here in the last few days um working with with chris kessel and uh in the west virginia soccer association uh, getting a a policy amendment uh to go before the the board uh of directors of u.s soccer and uh, uh eventually possibly even to the uh the u.s soccer national council at the uh the next agm in february in nashville is a policy amendment that would would treat for the first time uh the nwsl which is the first division of women's professional outdoor soccer here in the u.s with the same level of respect, dignity, and treatment as the first division men's outdoor league in Major League Soccer when it comes to voting power within the professional council. Um, and so this amendment would ensure that uh, there would be no gender discrimination when it comes to uh, the, the voting power uh, within uh, that professional council, which you know collectively is, uh, is about 25%, give or take a little bit, uh, of the overall vote in an election. And Jack, just to put this into perspective, um, in the 2018 election, the uh, the professional council had about 15 percent of the overall vote, which was about 60 percent of that professional council. Uh, 
allocated to Major League Soccer, the NWSL was right around the same amount or even maybe just even a tad smaller than the USL, which is the uh, Division II League. And, uh, and the NWSL had only about 5% or, or maybe just under 5%, which is three times the, the voting power for men's outdoor professional soccer than the, than the women's outdoor Division I professional soccer. So this policy amendment, I think, would go a long way in helping us. Uh, we, have, we have a couple lawsuits on the women's side, Hope Solo, the U.S. Women's National Team, talking about you know not getting proper treatment, equal treatment, representation, etc. This, this amendment would go a long way to doing that. And in a country that has been kind of the flag bearer for the women's game, uh, for for quite a while, and is is as you mentioned, kind of the envy of the world when it comes to the squad and the depth of the squad. I think that's a good step forward. Um, when when we look at where this country is and kind of looking over the next four or five, um, ten years, um, the competition's going to get stiffer. The coaching's getting better around the world, um, and and these programs are on the rise. How important is it uh, for the federation to get it right in how they're treating this women's national team program in terms of resources, representation, etc.? Well, first of all, I think you and Chris should be commended um, for that work because I think in 2019, if you're treating anybody in any walk of life different based on their gender or their race or their religion or anything like that, then you, you need a long, hard look at yourself. Um, so you should be commended for that. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly appreciate the work you're doing as somebody who works in the women's game. Um, but I, I think for the U.S., when you are when you are the most successful team and you are the one everyone wants to be, I think you you need to assume the responsibility of being the flag bearer, uh, the torch bearer and, uh, of change and, and leading the way. So um, the hope is that US soccer realize how important that they are in the, in the changing of the landscape and the changing of, of certainly lives of many young girls who are growing up playing youth soccer now who would like to be a professional um, that, uh, that they take, they don't take that responsibility lightly and that they make sure they make all the changes to, to leave a better future and a better game and a more inclusive game um, for everyone. Um, I think the U S is the major nation in that they are the number one player. Looking um, uh, over the uh, Atlantic for a moment, I wanted to pick your brain. Where do you think this English national team program is? Is it is it in good hands with Phil Neville, or you kind of at the point where you're like, uh, maybe going forward, I want to look at somebody else in that spot? What do you think uh, of where where he's at, the job he's done up to this point, and the job he's doing at the present? Is he the right guy for the job, or or do you think uh, we need some new blood? No, I, I like him. I think he, um, I don't think he deserves to lose his job. I think he's done a good job. I mean, let's face it, we're a missed penalty um, or a big toe of an offside decision away from, from being in the final. Um, so, I, you know, if you, if you, again, if you want to compare the two, you look at the men's job, we're very happy with what we got on the men's side and he did the same on the women's side. So why should he lose his job? Um I've been disappointed by some of his comments lately. I think they've been a little bit aggressive and um, tad arrogant. Um, but I think he's done a good job. I don't think he deserves to lose it. There's nothing there that says he does. There's been a huge investment in the women's game in the last 12 to 18 months. Um, it's increasing. The players are going to get better. Um, so I think he should be judged on the job he's doing uh, and continues to do going forward. I don't read too much in the, into the friendlies, um, to the games that matter. So, I mean, I, I'm certainly happy with him for now. I'm not, I don't think he needs to go. Um, but as we go forward and the, and the landscape changes and it is changing drastically every day um, at home, um, then obviously a, a bit like what I said about the US when you have the investment and you have the players and you're making all the strides the standard and the expectations go up so it will certainly be interesting to see what happens as that that increases 
Switching gears back over here, um, I wanted to uh, ask you, there's been some speculation, some proposals in regards to college soccer in an extended season, longer season, kind of spreading some things out instead of being so compact. Uh, What are your thoughts on these proposals? And and when you look at college soccer, what kind of changes, reforms would would you want to see uh, take place in order to improve the college game oh god well for, it, it, this is a tough one to answer because it is i think it varies deeply based on the program based on the size of school so i coached them i coached division two men's last year at cal state dominguez hills um phenomenal facilities you're based at the la galaxy you get some great talent through there i'm now coaching division three women's um here in southern california so it's going to depend entirely on the program, the division, the expectations of the players coming in. Um, I can say from a logistical standpoint, regardless of the division, the season at the moment is, is I think it's detrimental to the physical um, aspect of the players, certainly, certainly to the mental aspect. It, it's far too intense. It's too much. Um, the NCAA are very big on it being student athlete and student first. Um, but the regulations that are put in place are crazy because they force everything into such a time. There's so much pressure upon it. You barely get any preseason at all. The games matter. I mean, you know, this thing where this thing where your record matters, even if you have a bad league conference, I, I struggle to get around that because you basically have what two scrimmages, then you're into games that count on the record, even though they count as preseason. So you don't really treat them as preseason. So the kids come in, you're running them to death, and then all of a sudden you're straight in. You're having two, uh, two, three games in a week. Um, and the, the NCAA wants you to give them time. They kind of force you to give them time. But if you had more time and it was spread out, you could give them more time. You know, so we play a game, we do a recovery session the next day. You then can't give them the, the, the day off the following day because you're probably playing again. Well, there's just no way. I mean, you heard Pep Guardiola talking about that this week about Man City. They're going to have to do it. And he's saying, I can't run any preparation. I just got to tell my players to get straight in the freezer and I won't talk to him. Well, I don't realize we've been doing that in the college game in this country for years and years and years. And it seems to be just taken as the norm. Um, so it hasn't progressed. So I think the changes are, uh, are long overdue. I think they really are long overdue. Um, my concern is, you know, there's always going to be those that run it, uh, that ruin it. Um, you know, there's always going to be those that, are still going to be running the same camps they run now where the kids come in for double days and you just run the piss out of them every single day, every single session and play and play and play. And they're going to be doing that now over nine months. And so how's that going to affect their grades? How's that going to affect them getting jobs? How's it going to affect them getting, having a social life? I think all of that is massively important. Again, depending on the division, depending on the size of program, depending on the lifestyle that the kids who come in want, um, so it's a tricky one because it, it, I think it should be done certainly for, from a technical and tactical aspect and physical and mental. I think it's absolutely the right thing. I just hope that I hope that it's taken on board. I hope that both genders do it. I hope that certainly the Division One programs take it on board. Um, you know, I know for me now as a D3 program, coaching girls D3, um, you know, kids who go to a D3, it's not necessarily a talent thing, certainly in the women's game. It's maybe they want a different a different lifestyle. Um, and so, you know, the thought of making a D3 program go all year round, I think, is detrimental to the reasons why they chose Division 3. Um, last year at Division 2 on the men's, you know, I think those guys would have wanted to do it all year round. And so I think it, it varies. But certainly I think the Division 1 programs that have a responsibility or at least claim that they're involved in the production of talent that goes through the professional game. I think certainly it makes a hundred percent sense for them and it should have been done a long time ago. Looking at this extended season, uh, what kind of impact do you think it would have on leagues like the WPSL and the NPSL, uh, leagues that have traditionally built their uh, teams out on college players? 
it uh, honestly i don't think it would have much impact because my my 12 or 13 years here have taught me that the sporting culture here is massive and actually trying to get kids to take a break seems to be the hardest thing um you know, you coach in the youth game, you got kids coming from basketball, they come to soccer and then they go off to you know, lacrosse or whatever they're doing. And it's like they don't get chance to miss it. Um, I think that personally, I think that's why the burnout rate is so high. Um, certainly in the women's game, you look at the transfer portal and how many kids just quit. Um, it's it's staggeringly high, far too high. Um, and again, there are some college legislation that I just legislation that I don't agree with um, in that that I think contributes to that. Um, but I don't. I, I honestly don't think it would make a difference. I think the the, the college kids would still play. Um, I know for me, growing up in England, it was like you know in the summer when you went for break, you either had to join the cricket team, which was basically just all the lads on your soccer team would just get together and make a cricket team because you didn't have anything else to do, or you just waited it out. But by the time season rolled around, you were absolutely chomping at the bit to get back out there. Um, it doesn't. I've never really felt like kids out here have that. They're always doing something. They're always playing something. They never get the time to give their bodies a rest, give their mind a rest, give their emotions a rest. Um, and, you know, get excited. Give them a chance to miss it. I, I think that's a massive thing. Last point here on the on the college side of uh, this conversation. California law just passed about uh, being able to pay players, players earning uh, money off their likeness, etc. Um, what kind of impact, if that law stands and we see that start to be, you know, replicated across the country in other states, basically forcing the NCAA's hand on this whole amateurism aspect uh, that they've held uh tight and fast to for a long time um, to, to being able to open up to where, you know, players can earn, can earn money um, while in college playing uh, the sport that they love. What kind of impact do you see on the college game if that is the case? Do you think kids might look at, hey, I can make some money while I'm in college, or do you think it would have very little effect on college soccer? What's your take on that? Uh, um. When it, when it came out, I was pleased because I think certainly in the other sports, in the more traditional American sports, your, your basketball and your football in particular, um, the amount of money the NCAA make off these kids is frightening. Um, in, as far as soccer is concerned, it's interesting because kids are now, certainly in the men's game, they're starting to bypass college and sign, you know, homegrown deals or go to Europe and, and get their professors on that way. So it's they're not so heavily reliant. Um, we've seen one or two where that's starting to be the case in the women's game, but I don't think it's going to be as drastic. Um, so I think it would it would keep more people, it would keep more talent perhaps to pursue college or at least consider it um, than perhaps is currently the landscape at the moment. Um but the money in college sports is, is, is interesting because, I, I, you know, something like that is fine. But, you know, I was just talking to a player today at a D1 program and, you know, she, she found out she got her money cut um, and she didn't know. And so I find that really difficult, things like that really difficult because we're not doing enough for these kids that come in. You know, if, you, if, you, if it was a professional game and you signed someone on a four-year contract, you couldn't just decide – you know, on year two that you, they're not as good as you thought or they're not doing the job you wanted, so you want to reduce it, that's the contract you signed. You know, I would like to see the scholarships be guaranteed for them because I don't think they would be given out as freely. I think it would reduce the transfer rate. I think it would make recruiting a little bit more... Um, I think it would people would ease back on the recruiting because they would have to get it right. Um, so there's a lot of things as far as the money's concerned in college that I think need to be looked at because I certainly don't think that is enough is being done for the kids. That's why a part of me is very, very pleased um, that the kids can make some money. But on the flip side, it's are they going to go in and just go through the motions? Um, certainly in the main sport, in the main American sports, I think it's good for them because the NCAA makes an absolute fortune off them. 
Yeah, I mean, the, we're not talking millions. We're talking billions, if you've, if anyone's paid attention. And uh, it's it's a massive amount of money. And uh, to see, you know, some kids, and, I, and I've seen kids, uh, you know, who, who have, you know, aspired to play in the NFL, for example. And that's been their dream growing up. And they make it to college. And it, for whatever reason, maybe an injury occurs, maybe just, you know, you just didn't get it worked out and and maybe you make it to the NFL you get a cup of coffee in the NFL but it doesn't turn out to the career that you think you're going to have um I've always argued that I mean for a lot of players college is the peak it's the pinnacle um you know the vast majority in in all sports right And, and and so this idea that they should not be allowed to earn money while they're in college uh is just bizarre to me and uh and and i'm i'm happy to see that law passed i think it is going to create pressure on other states and and quite frankly on the nta it's, it's worse than that though it's worse than that though you know even being a division two coach you know you i couldn't i couldn't print off a lad's homework for him in the printer in the office because the school charges kids to pay to print at the school so if i printed it off for him on the office computer because the one in his dorm was broken you know, even though it's only you know, 75 cents or a buck or 50 cents, or whatever it is, that would be an NCAA violation because I'm treating him different to the rest of the student population. But we're OK to wheel the kid out and sell tickets, five dollars a game for people to come and watch the Division Two level. The kid's not going to be a professional. You know, he's trying to be an athlete and we can't even print his homework off to save 50 cents. You know, so things like that uh, are where the NCAA is totally, totally archaic. And so I'm. I'm okay with the kids getting getting their own back a little bit. Me too. Completely agree. Uh, Jack, as always, it is uh, it's great to have you on the show to, to pick your brain and uh, good luck out there with your, your college season going on right now. Uh, how can people uh, follow your work uh, online, uh, social media, etc. to uh, to pick your brain, connect with you and uh, learn more about what you do? Yeah, my, my Twitter is um, at jgidney88. Um, you know, I, I know you put it up when you put the show up. Um, but honestly, it, it, Twitter is, it gets a lot of stick. Um, and some days it's the worst invention in the world, but some days it's the best. I've met some wonderful people, um, including yourself and your family, um, through it. I'm, I, I have great connections. I talk with a lot of great people and I love it. So I could talk the game for days and days and days. So if anybody wants to give me a follow and just chat soccer, I'd love to. Absolutely love to. You heard it here. Um, I am a testament to that. That's how Jack and I first uh, connected, and I have connected with so many people uh, in that way as well. Jack, thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Uh, Good luck uh, as you continue uh, through this fall uh, college season. Thanks, mate. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Say hi to the boys for me. Thank you. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for watching. Thanks for Jack's for Jack. 
for coming on the show. Really appreciate him stopping by the show today. As always, you can watch on Facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at DanielWorkman.com. Catch me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. We'll see everyone again tomorrow. Goodbye.